So here's the question. How do active people in the Atlanta area stay pain-free and live the active, fulfilled life that they deserve at any age? This is the question, and this podcast is the answer. I'm Danny Matei, and welcome to the Active Atlanta Podcast. The Active Atlanta Podcast is sponsored by Athletes Potential. At Athletes Potential, we help active adults stay that way, pain-free and active doing the sports and activities that they love for life. We do this by working on four different areas. That's movement, nutrition, stress management, and sleep. When we optimize these four areas, you feel better, you move better, and you live better for life. Head to athletespotential.com to learn how we can help you stay active for life today. What is up, everyone, and welcome back to the Active Atlanta Podcast. I'm your host, Doc Jake Sport, and today, y'all, I am with the founder and owner of Peak Sport Psychology. He's his official title for the time being. It doesn't necessarily it doesn't do him any justice for everything that he does for uh, athletes and non athletes alike. But he's a certified mental performance consultant. Uh, he's helping out a ton of people, whether that's with his business, uh, whether that uh, serving as the role of an upper school counselor at Westminster uh, School District here in Atlanta. Uh, he's also an assistant coach for them uh, in soccer. Guys, he's helping out a ton of people in the in, in the mental and physical space of athleticism. Um, and I'm really, really excited to bring him on here because he's got an interesting journey. He's got a lot to unpack here, and uh, we've got a short time to do it. So uh, without further ado, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, yeah. Hi there. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit about uh, before we started recording here. And man, you've got such a kind of like a wild ride, honestly, <laughs> of uh, <laughs> you just kind of like how you you ended up where you're at. So uh, I know we could take up the whole podcast just talking about like your, your overall history, but like, I guess give our listeners a little bit of kind of like who you are. And mm -hmm. the uh, like the little snippet of how you, or where you're at and how you kind of got here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, my name's Sam, and I'm from Manchester in England originally, and then I grew up in the Midlands um, around the Birmingham area. And you know, I was always an athlete. Uh, my entire identity as a as a youth individual was an, was an athlete. I played soccer, and um, after that, I played rugby, but. I played soccer was predominantly my favorite sport. I was very good at it too. Um, lots of academy work with the trialing um, with different teams and clubs in the Midlands area. And then injuries hit and um, yeah. I was no longer an athlete. Um, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll get back into it and I'll, I'll work hard and rehab and go back in and go straight back into the soccer piece. You know, I had a very promising career ahead of me in, in soccer and um, I was a striker and, and then injury within mm. four weeks of coming back Again, um, I, I broke my left ankle and then I broke my right ankle and and all the ligaments went. And then, you know, fortunately for me, they, that happened at a point in my career where I was able to go back to school because in England, you graduate school, high school at 16. And those injuries happened for me at 16 and 17, which, which allowed me to go back to my school to do A-levels, which allowed me then to go to university. Um, I was never the strongest student ever. Um, <laughs> so I was wor worried about what I would do when it came to the academic piece. And I stumbled across a small university called University of Glamorgan and they offered this sports psychology course. 
was like, oh, that sounds like fun. Like, like you know, it'd be nice to go back into that, that component. I didn't have that help when I was an yeah. athlete. And um, so I did that. And it was the first course that was recognized by the BPS, which is the British Psychological Society. And uh, so they accredited the first undergraduate program there at that school. And I fell in love with the program. Um, I loved sports psychology from day one. It was what they tricked you with, though, was that it was a, a dual <laughs> major slash triple major. You had to do all the components of sports science. So the physiological aspects of, of sport. And then you had to do all the components of psychology as if you were getting a psychology major as well. And then you had to do the sports psychology components on top of that. So there was, there was a lot of class. My schedule was, 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 was so full. It was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so I fell in love with that. And um, I, I did my undergrad degree in sports psychology. Um, I actually signed on to a, a master's program at Cardiff University. Uh, well, Cardiff met back then to do my master's in sports psychology. And then at that same time, I met my wife, who, who is American, and decided to move to America and dropped out of that program pretty quickly. Yeah, and um, used sports psychology. I became a personal trainer. Went down that route. Was training here in Atlanta for about four years. Coached nice. at Saint Pius for a little bit. The boys JV soccer for fun. Um, and then you know, just decided you know I need to get back to my education. My my true passion was the mental side of yeah. that work. So when I was working with clients from a personal training point of view, it was more the motivation that excited me. It was more getting to know my clients, the relationship components. And I was like, I just need to go back into that field. So <laughs> we sold our house. Uh, my wife was four months pregnant with twin boys, and we decided to move to London. And uh, I went back and I did my master's degree there uh -huh. in sport and exercise psychology at the University of Roehampton, which, again, was another accredited program for the BPS uh -huh. to continue that line of education. Completed that. And then at the end of that program, we moved back to Atlanta. Um, <laughs> Because, um, you know, the family component was key for us here. And uh, yeah. it had a big network in this space and we just moved back in. Um, nice. So we moved back and, you know, I was figuring what to do. What do I do with myself? So I started Peak Sports Psychology at that point. And um, it was small. It, it was humble. And, yeah. you know, I, I just take some clients as I see fit, working on not just the sport components, but the exercise components of, of psychology as well. So the habits of exercise was a, was a big piece because that was an easy transition from personal training to exercise habits. And then yeah. using the mental skills components for the exercise piece was, was critical at that point. And then um, I finally eventually worked on my PhD piece and, and got it accepted at the University of Birmingham. And, you know, I'm in my second year now collecting data for that research and my, my focus is on coach team relationships i've had a big passion for those constructs and team sports yeah um moving on from like the dyadic aspects of the one-to-one -one into the team pieces and so yeah and then at the same time i got a job at a school at westminster schools as an upper school counselor uh, and so just just things just kept rolling for me slowly but surely yeah. and peak sports psychology started i started working at westminster um and then, uh, you know, I just created a plan to go slowly but surely focus on my education piece and get all these different components of my education down and work that and apply that to my clients. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> that's it, right? That, that's, that's it. it. That's, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> yeah. Dude, that's crazy. And, you know, I think you bring up some really interesting things. I see this happen. Or I see this daily in the clinic all the time. That connection between, like, uh, 
the mental and physical aspect of performance and how intertwined those two are. Uh, I mean, it's tough because like people will get frustrated where they're like, they always want to come to me or they always think they always want to find like that one little like straw that broke the camel's back in terms of like why they're injured. I was like, no, 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 there's probably injured because you've been dealing with 12 months of increased stress from being in a pandemic. And then like, and there's all the, and like uh, people are like, what do you mean stress? And like trying to like explain to them how stress and it can affect sleep can affect overall well being and your body's ability to adapt and change and handle different and drops its capacity levels down quite a bit. And, um, mm-hmm it's a real light bulb moment for people. And I'm sure you see that all the time and not necessarily the injury realm, but in the performance realm as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I actually, uh, an interesting piece about that is the origins of sports psychology. Um, so my undergraduate degree was, was a BPS accredited degree in sports psychology. And by the time I came around to do my master's degree after a, a slight pause with the family piece, it was called um, the psychology of sport and exercise. And so the BPS had changed the accreditation name from sports psychology to sport and exercise because there's, as research grew and developed, it became this massive component that sports psychology wasn't just about sports. There's yeah. an exercise component to it. And the exercise piece is about the physiological aspect of sports. So when you talk about sports psychology nowadays, you have to combine those two pieces, the mind and the body from the mm-hmm. psychological and the physiological aspects. And then that's those two aligning is when you can hit those peak performances. If they're misaligned, that's when the issues start to occur, whether you become more prone to stressors and become more anxious as a result. And so these different components kick in. And yeah, that, that physiological component is critical to getting all the steps right in the mental piece because everyone you know if I ask a client immediately so why are you reaching out to me well for starters no one's reaching out to me because they just want a championship um <laughs> right for some reason you know when we're, when we're on top we think great awesome it's not yeah. oh, how do I maintain it it's <laughs> awesome I'm good and so yeah, figured out people come and they say you know I've just lost the motivation for this and it's like cool so what what was your motivation what what's different and then they go, well, there's, you know, I just, I can't focus during games. And you go, cool. And I think back in the day, a sports psychologist would hear, I can't focus and do a mental skills training component to work on focus and attention mm-hmm. skills and bringing the attention back to the body for that immediate skill. So if an athlete said, I need to learn more about this focus piece, you would say, cool, well, let's do this mental skills component to focus on concentration in the moment. And, you know, we can call it cueing. Um, Mm -hmm. we'll do some breathing exercises, cure it to a movement, and then you can do that in a game and things like that. And that's almost like putting a bandaid on a broken pipe. Uh, At some point it's just going to gush out and that bandaid won't hold it. And then that focus gets impacted in another area of the sport or the performance aspect. And so a lot of times in my consultations, in my first meetings, you know, I'm very, open with I don't set a time because you just don't know how long that time is going to go with each client and how ready they are to open up about what truly is motivation for them and when it's focused it's aligning what's going on outside of the sport as to why that is then impacting inside the sport what is it that you're losing attention from because it's not the sport you're losing attention you're distracted by something else so what is that something else that's going on that's then impacting your sport and then it could be injury most of the time with especially elite athletes, it's injury related. So there might be a niggling injury and their distraction comes from, let's say there's a, a fractured toe. Oh, I just, there's a shooting pain in my foot. 
And every time I go to kick a soccer ball, I just, I know it's going to hurt. So I don't kick it as hard. And then my performance isn't as good. So, and then I get distracted by someone. There's a crowd watching me. Are they judging me because I'm not playing the way I need to? And then it's as simple as, well, you need to get your toe fixed. Mm-hmm. So that it doesn't matter if we did a cueing skill to realign the focus, <laughs> because the second you get to kick the ball again, you're going to feel that pain and come straight back to it. So yeah. the mental skills components are really important. And over time, that's kind of changed, I think, the field of sports psychology away from just this, this cognitive mental piece to aligning the physiological impacting the mental components. I think that's, that's, that's been critical over the, over the past 20 years, I think, in the field of sport and exercise psychology. Yeah, man, that's awesome. There's a lot of stuff that, um, that you just unpacked there that I think aligns really well with like the transition of medicine in general, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, even I see it even in the world of rehab medicine where, uh, you know, say, uh, say somebody's coming in with, um, I don't know, we'll call it shoulder pain, like pain of the front of their shoulder. And, um, you know, back in the day, be like, oh, well, that's, that's gotta be your biceps tendon. That's that only structure. That's, that's what, that's that main structure right there. You get, you obviously have biceps, uh, tendinopathy and, mm-hmm. um, without even taking a look at like, well, okay, we can address that all day long, but if we don't, if we don't look at like why those symptoms are there, you know, like, do you have a weak rotator cuff? Like, do you have, um, poor thoracic mobility? Do you have, is it as something as simple as just doing different or having better motor mechanics when you do a certain position? So you go, so you cool off that spot there. Um, mm-hmm. there's all, there could be nothing wrong with your biceps tendons, all your mechanics. And, um, and that's, so I, I immediately went to that. Cause like exactly what you're talking about, like that athlete that broke their toe, for example, or that athlete that goes and sees a psychologist where if they, um, obviously they're able to focus in at some point in their career to get mm-hmm. to where they were at. Right. So, uh, if you don't ever figure out why all of a sudden that, like that, like intrinsic motivation isn't there now. And all you're doing is, is doing refocusing drills. It's exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about. You're just kind of like suppressing those emotions and, and that drive more and more and more. Um, so that makes yeah, a ton and of sense. There's a lack of attachment and without attachment yeah. to motivation, there's no drive to want to improve or change something. And then the human body will naturally defend itself and blame something else for that issue. And yeah. then you just continue going on about things without focusing on it on what's actually going on and i'm sure that bleeds into all these all all other aspects of life too you know <laughs> yeah i know it i mean it is it, you kind of you, you go you can go pretty quickly in and out of the sport component into the life piece and then it's a matter of realigning those those two and coming back in because yeah the outside of sport athletes the non-athlete version of self can be different to the athlete version of self and then it's a matter of understanding what those two different personalities are and why they're different and why do they not align what is, you know, what is the arousal level of one versus the other? And understanding that from an individual's component is, can be critical towards getting that mind right prior to competition or understanding why you might think the way you do when you're not playing or why you might practice well and not play well or why you might play well and not practice well. There's all these different types of athletes and it's yeah. almost a matter of normalizing that every athlete is different. You don't have to always be putting in 150% 24-7 yeah, it might work for one person, but it also might not work for the other. So it's a matter of just finding that unique version of self as, as an athlete or even non-athlete. Yeah. Matter. Oh my gosh. I totally agree. It's like, uh, man, it's like this, the saying that's, that's in every locker, every high school locker room I've ever been in. I feel like it was like, um, you know, give 110% of everything you do, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's yeah. like, 
what bullshit or how much bullshit is that, man? Like, uh, that's just a fallacy. Like, you're not going to be able to do so. And you're just setting yourself up for failure because, like, I'm not going to drink my protein shake <laughs> that I'm sipping on right here at like 100% as fast as I can, or like, as hard as I can drink this protein shake because it's just not needed versus something that's like uh, when I work with a patient, I'm going to be with that patient with as yeah. much attention as I can possibly give them. So, um, yeah, it's different. And I think like being able to show that to athletes or give that or demonstrate that to athletes is, is crucial. What would you say is like, um, so kind of, man, this might be putting you on the spot. And if I am sorry, but what are like, th- like two or three of the largest complaints that you have coming in, uh, from your athletes as it relates to decreased performance? And this um, could be athlete, it could be exercise as well. It doesn't have to be just purely like a, like a field court athlete. Yeah. Well, I think the, the biggest factor there would depend on level of athlete. Um, yeah. So if well, let's I'm go working, with, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I'll, I'll give an example of the different levels. Um, yeah. So like at, at the elite level. So athletes will come to me at the elite level, um, not understanding why there's a dip. Um, like a different skill set. No, the skill is always there. It's usually performance. Okay. So, yeah. You know, if you're an elite athlete, you don't lose the skill. Like riding the bike, you learn to ride a bike and you perfect it, and you just do it. it comes autonomous. So when you're an elite level athlete, no matter what level, what sport you're playing, you are there for a reason. You have the technical ability to be in that space. The only thing that then impacts that technical ability is something. Now, is it a physiological component or is it a psychological component or is one impacting the other and vice versa? So it's ciphering out what's going on. So I think with the elite level, it's um, why is my performance dipping? And then it's, it, 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 there's no, you know what? It's quite interesting. I don't have any athletes that have the same thing. Yeah, oh, I all, bet not. Yeah. <laughs> they all have something different. And um but one of the things that I think it does come down to first and foremost is motivation. So if it's, you know, I work on the mental skills components for pre-participation skills, um, participation skills, and then just general skills. Um, the general skills are largely based upon like the cognitive behavioral therapy model where you're just focusing on relaxation skills, um, breathing and med- mindfulness and all these different pieces of just general practicing skills for emotional regulation and things like that. But again, it comes back to the motivation, which is the pre-participation model, because the reason why an athlete might dip in form at the elite level is because something has changed in their environment. And so it's understanding what has changed in that environment, whether it's a a new coach, whether it's a new um, player that's been signed onto the team whether the athlete is a new player on that team and it's not what they expected. Um, I think that, if I'm trying to think about what the the deeper components is, from the elite level, it is not doing enough research before committing to a new club or team. Uh And having this expectation as to what was sold to you prior to signing a contract and then moving into that new space and environment and it not being exactly what you were sold. Yeah, And then that causes then this automatic detrust in how the athlete perceives that club or, or environment or even coach or peers. And that then causes that motivational 
piece to just start diminishing slight withdrawal um, from participation and then, and then there's more pressure to want to do more and try harder and train harder to get things up and they focus as you said is it a skill component all elite athletes will go back to the skill piece and, and try harder and practice longer and then that can then lead towards injury because if they're going above and beyond when they're already training hard that can then cause more injury which then impacts the mentality again so i would say the biggest thing is 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 trust when it comes to the lack of motivation towards wanting to be in a certain space or environment um, mm-hmm. from that elite level. If I was looking at um, an amateur level, uh, let's say like a high school athlete um, wanting to go to college. Mm-hmm. So the psychological component there stems from the cognitive ability of that individual. So at the stage of development for an adolescent, they don't have the capacity for reasoning the same way as an adult does. So an elite athlete that's 25 plus years old has the ability to make more reasoning judgments than a 17 year old high school athlete does. Their brain just hasn't developed to that stage yet. So they don't have the ability to reason as to why they're do- thinking or doing things the way they do, the way an adult does. And with mm-hmm. that in play, that then impacts the way they see certain things. So altering their perspective of events can be very difficult managing certain components as to what's going on can be difficult if you the the biggest piece there is managing the expectations um there's two actually for high school for me one is managing the expectations of what does it take what does it mean to transition from high school to college um that that can be quite daunting because if you think of yourself (laughs) as a as a senior in high school elite athlete that's getting calls all the time from college coaches you feel pretty good about yourself and then you step into the mold of going to that program and then the coach has already started recruiting the next line of people and you are no longer that special individual Mm -hmm. and you're now a freshman on a college program so you went from senior high school elite ego to (laughs) freshman college fragile ego um with the lack of that coaching commitment piece which makes you then question your own performance so there's a matter of expectations there so i think that's one of the big things i think that a high school athlete doesn't see that initially uh-huh. because of that cognitive but they can't process that far in the, f- in the future so it's a matter of it's a matter of prep- preparation um getting that mindset ready for that and the other piece as well is um some athletes are really good at what they do but they just don't want to do it and the <laughs> parents want them to do it. Mm-hmm. And so then it's a matter of getting that motivational piece. Parents go, they just don't have the drive. They don't put it, they're so good. They're amazing. But I don't get it. Can you make my kid do this? I can't make a kid do anything. Um, <sighs> your kid makes their choices. We can't force them. That's not my job. My job is to get them motivated to alter their attitude. And then right. it's a conversation with the parents as to, so is this, are you trying to live vicariously through your child? Because your child yep. loves the sport, but they want to go to college to become a, a doctor and they yeah. can't play sport and do that at the same time. So they've picked this different path and you as a parent have to kind of come around to that. So my job then is more family style piece as to aligning those ideas. So I would say there's a, there's, there's a lot of psychological components to those pieces um, before you even get into the psychological skill development of, you know, working on the specific components of training on the mental skills piece. Like I, I, I do a big um, 
survey at the beginning that focused on nine different components of exercise, uh, of mental exercises. And then I, it mm-hmm. gives me a rough graph idea as to what that looks like. And then that gives me a gauge as an idea of where the athlete lands on these mental skill development. And so that helps me guide my questions before yeah. going to those skill developments. Um, and it's important that we do that before we do anything for that buy-in component. It's the relationship yeah. development. So, yeah, I kind of went on a bit there about. No, that's great. No, I thought that was awesome. Athletes won. <laughs> I think that's really interesting because I do. We do work with a number of these athletes where I'm at. Where uh, I mean, you do see that. Where the uh, I'll never forget. There's this one example, and I won't say any names or anything like that for obvious reasons. But um, this patient came in, and uh, and, and like you know, the parent did. 99.7% of the talking, right? Like just about mm-hmm. all of it, um, which can or can't be common depending on like what the kid is like the maturity level of the kid and everything. But, uh, um, man, as soon as the parent left the room though, uh, voluntarily, uh, as soon as yeah. the parent left the room, the kid kind of opened up to me and just said like, they weren't interested in playing the sport anymore, you know? And they're like, yeah, I'm just kind of doing this because my mom wants me to, you know? And, uh, yeah. that's a whole can of worms that like they need to go see somebody like you in a situation like that like yeah. there's, there's there's you know there's very little that i'm going to do in that you know because then at that point where when i were looking at like because then during the during like the eval like nothing's really making sense from like an overall screening standpoint i'm not saying this person was faking their injury by any means but um i just think that there was like a low threshold for discomfort in a situation like that and just looking for mm-hmm. excuses not to participate in whatever reason that may be and uh yeah, so I see that quite a bit too, and it's and it's an interesting component that you, and I, I think you. And I, unfortunately, I think you're seeing that more and more um, in in today's age. You know, yeah, no, you definitely are. That there's a, that vicarious piece from the parents is critical, and then you know that does lead to injury. Oh, if yeah. if you're not 100 percent committed in in practice or wanting something, then you're never really 100 percent committed to that performance piece. So if you're in practice, let's say uh, American football, right, and you don't really want to mm-hmm. be there. And you go into a tackle at 60% because you don't really want to be there. But the person mm. coming at you is going in at 100% because they are trying to get into college. Well, yeah. guess who's, guess who's going to get hurt in that situation? So sure. there's, there's a danger component to this. And that's, that's some of that alignment is, that I like to try and get across to the parent piece is understanding you know, the situations you're putting kids in, if they want to be there or not. Um, yeah. Understanding if you're not committed, this is the reality of what that might look like um, eventually and it can yeah. be quite tough and you know you when you do go into that family component and you understand these pieces and if a child is usually abiding by what parents say that can fall under that family therapy component and then if it does stem into something else like slightly more uh, on a higher level risk and me myself I'm more than happy to refer that family out for external therapy with you know a psychologist that specialist that, that specializes in family therapy or maybe that athlete this thing that's impacting the athlete is trauma. Yeah. Um, I would refer that out uh, immediately to get that work done and focus on from a from that component. And then I work al- in alignment with that therapist on those pieces because I always want to keep my work sports related. I want to keep it performance related. And, you know, I, I will touch upon those subjects, but I don't want to go into that component piece put too deep deeply and it's building that level of trust to say hey i think you need to go over this side for this piece we'll work in alignment and we go back to that performance related aspect and once we get through this we'll go through here so 
there's yeah. I think there's that fine line a, a lot of the times, and I think that that was one of the hardest things for sports psychologists coming through the field was at what point when you're going through the evaluation do you figure out what level of support is needed for this client and that's if it's within our realm that's great if it's not not and i think that's one of the hardest things the apa and the bps um Mm -hmm. trying to recognize sports psychology as this uh, to be called a psychologist especially in america because the apa doesn't recognize it as to be called a psychologist in that field and Mm -hmm. so i think that's the hardest piece is going well at what level is that separation point so i think us yeah. guys working in this field, you just have to recognize that pretty quickly to be like, sure. hey, this trauma is impacting this. And we yep. can work on all the skills development, but we got to deal with that first to make sure that we're that is right. And you can do an mm-hmm. evaluation and get a diagnosis for something that's going on. And then we can realign the training alongside that. So that's a really key piece of that. Oh, man, for sure. Yeah. And then uh, real quick here, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. What about, or not real quick, but you can answer it however long you want to. Uh, <laughs> um, but what about uh, with like just general exercise? Like, do you ever, do you work with people who just like either like have lost motivation or having issues with trying to maintain routine or, uh, or trying to balance family life along with, with giving back to themselves and, and exercising and trying to, and, and all that. Um, do you have any like general or not even general, but like uh, common, uh, complaints or issues or struggles that you see in the clinic? Yeah, um, absolutely. So the exercise component is is a is a realm of its own, and um, I will say that the most issues with body size do mm-hmm. generally stem from some form of trauma experience in childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, usually, if if a client comes in overweight, obese. Um, having issues with losing weight and maintaining and sticking to certain diet pieces like that, there's this air of control about self-image and self-talk that is negative and continuous. And that might have stemmed from a psychological impact from a childhood that's just gone through. And that makes it more difficult to attach the motivation towards losing weight. So what I like to do in that piece is, is bring that up and say, have you yeah. ever thought about this? And we go down that route of, of that piece. And then when it comes to the motivational components towards being now, it's a lot of like ACT, you know, like ACT type therapy, like accepting where you're at and what you're doing to be able to start this new level and change towards how do we get that motivation right for the exercise component? You know, what is the goal? Do we create this long-term goal, break it down with a meso goal? And then what are your micro steps towards hitting each of those landmarks? And then it's making it more accomplishable and attainable a lot of people use the smart pieces that that's great um but the the what happens for the clients that do the exercise pieces they generally want it really fast and forget how long it's taken to get out of shape <laughs> yeah um and so it's a matter of explaining a lot of this is stem throughout your life to get to this point it's taken a long time and things have occurred and happened so there's no quick four-week fix but it yeah. is, you know, we know if you, anyone knows, if you cut your diet, if you cut your calories and you exercise regularly and you train the muscles, you increase your metabolism, that burns fat, that shreds up the body. So you can lose weight rapidly. Most overweight people lose weight really fast at the beginning of any yeah. program because A, they're excited about it and then, and they've lost a lot of weight. And then all of a sudden the motivation dips when the body starts going, wait a minute, what's happening? Mm-hmm. Change? <laughs> no, I don't like this. No, yeah. I don't want to do it. And then 
And then that's where a lot of drop-off usually occurs. So it's a matter of prepping the clients to know that this is what's going to happen and this drop's going to occur. And that's where it's really important to stick with these goals and micro goals of, you know, daily check-ins, weekly check-ins. Not with me, but with self, you know, with the goals and things like that. And and we have our regular check-ins to make sure that that stays on path. So the exercise component is key um, with understanding the life balance of what's going on outside. Um, the sleep patterns are really key with that piece. The diet and nutrition is key with exercise. Um, kids, time, management, personal time, work. All yeah. these components take away our energy. And if we are left with too little, then we think oh, well, we think more little of ourselves because we're not devoting anything to ourselves. So right. I always try and find those aspects to say, you know, you got to find that energy to give to yourself because you deserve it. You know, yeah. you give and give and give to people, but what are you giving to yourself? And then that's usually that start of the conversation of this is for you. You know, this exercise mm-hmm. time, this this time is for you. It's not necessarily exercise, it's time. And one of the biggest things, and I know you said quickly, I'm not very good at quickly. No, you're totally um, fine. No, you're totally fine. This is, is great. Yeah. Is this is this construct that I like to use with all my clients, especially if they are overweight, and that is exercise is not just going to the gym or running on a treadmill or you know, having to have a personal trainer um, yeah. or, or joining a new club or fitness routine or anything like that. Exercise is movement. And we move every day and we choose mm-hmm. to sit to watch TV. We choose to sit to, to work on our laptops. Uh, as I'm sat down doing this, yeah. I'm choosing. To, I could have been outside walking, but I knew that there would be cars. So I didn't do yeah. that. I usually <laughs> love to walk and talk in consultations. Yeah. because I like to be moving. And so I talk about exercise as a component of movement and how do we find areas to improve and increase our movement on a day-to-day basis before jumping to the next step? Because if, yeah. if, you know, if a new client is overweight and they jump into an exercise routine, they, they, they might get hurt um, mm-hmm. if it's not a safe or structured environment. If it's group training, usually that's one of the hardest pieces because there's no individual focus. Yeah. Um, a personal trainer might be more aware of those situations and be more cautious over the injury pieces, but uh, the average individual going into that weight loss piece is going to put these running, running shoes on. I'm going to go run. I can do that. <laughs> well, I haven't done it in so long, but then it's a matter of, well, no, you know, the world is advanced and we have Fitbits, we have Apple watches, we have technology that tracks our movement. Mm-hmm. We can utilize that to say, cool, I'm going to, see if I can increase my movement by this much. And so mm-hmm. that way you're, you're disassociating the term exercise with weight because yeah. you want to break that cycle because weight can fluctuate. You can be 200 pounds muscular. You can be 200 pounds non-muscular and look very differently. Mm-hmm. So we like to eliminate that weight component and say, let's just increase movement. Exercise is movement. It's not just yeah. burning calories. It's not just sweating. It's, it was mowing the grass. It's uh, yeah. doing housework. It's running around with your kids. You know, it's it's always it's parking further away from the entrance way to a shop. Yeah, and then walking those extra steps. So yeah, that's that's one of the key pieces breaking down that men- mental vision of what exercise is to an individual for that motivation aspect. Yeah, and just allowing people to kind of like uh man for lack of a better way to say this right now but like just kind of like letting exercise beat them where they're at like mm-hmm. um look like if you can't go to the gym for an hour and a half every day most people can't you're okay you know um like if you can yeah. only dedicate 20 minutes to yourself on one day 
do it. Like that's, that's the best thing that you can do for yourself. And like, you know, it's going to be pretty interesting when you talk about like, um, you know, the world will kind of take away from you all day long. And that's your time to give back to yourself in, in terms of exercise. Um, it's pretty interesting how once you start a routine and start developing habits, how you find more and more time to give back to yourself because you're more efficient in other aspects of your life or, you, or um, your brain starts to value more either consciously or subconsciously uh, the fact that you do give back to yourself and you do get to have an exercise routine and you're, you see that higher performance at work. You see yourself being a better spouse to you, uh, your husband, wife, or otherwise, or you see, um, you know, you, you just see these other aspects are growing. Like it really is like a keystone habit that um, starts influencing these other aspects. So um, mm -hmm. I think that's a big piece too, is everyone thinks they just need to all of a sudden be able to dedicate going to a gym for an hour and a half and going a hundred miles an hour all the time when you're not going to be able to do so. Sorry. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. Yeah. I think that comes down to goal setting. You know, you, you figure out what that goal is. What is it? What is the end result? And then let's be realistic. No, let's be really no. realistic. So you ask someone about <laughs> realistic expectations. You go, let's just yeah. check those realistic expectations again, shall we? And then so let's be really know, realistic. Yeah. It's allowing exercise to come to you and then saying, right, you got here. How do you feel? That was easy. Great. So let's just change mm -hmm. it a little bit. And mm -hmm. then that slight change to go, cool. How do you feel? I did it. Great. We're building that self-confidence. And then yeah. eventually we're going to get there. So for sure. Yeah. I love it, Sam. Dude, you've given us a lot of uh, really awesome like information through all this and a lot of stuff to kind of like digest and take away and, and try to learn more from. Um, if somebody wanted to reach out to you or if they wanted to learn more about what you do, what would be the best way to be able to, for them to do so? Uh, yeah, I, I have a website, uh, peaksportpsychology.com. Um, mm -hmm. That's it's on there. There's a little bit about me. Um, there's a slight introduction there towards sport ex and exercise components of psychology training. Mm -hmm. And then you can contact me directly on there. And then I, I respond by email. I'm very personable. The consultations are very open. Um, the first 30 minutes is a free phone call to get all the questions out the way. And yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm super laid back with the way I, I approach my business. I, I try not to be as, as clinical in that approach. It's all about relationship development. So that's awesome, man. And, I'll, and I'll email and I'm, I'm really relaxed that way. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Sam, man, thank you so much for uh, all your information and, and all your knowledge and all the time that you've been able to give to us for this past uh, 30 minutes or so. And uh, enjoy the rest of your evening, my man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's been great. Yeah. Thanks. Absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. If you want to find out more about our guests or about Athletes Potential and how we can help you continue to be active and pain-free in life, head over to athletespotential.com to learn more.